Good morning, church. I hope you guys are all having a great day today. You've had a great week so far. Those of you, I want to encourage you, if you've not yet joined us in our 40 Days of Prayer emphasis that started 10 days ago, today is day number 10. It's been a, I've been having a lot of fun with that. Those who have joined us online, uh, you can download a PDF of all the daily prayer points, as well as you can participate on, uh, we'll get notifications every day through Facebook of the different prayer points that are coming up. For example, yesterday was praying for our church on day number nine. So Regina and I came up here uh, as part of our, our deal. We came up here at the end of the day as we got and prayed for the church. We prayed over the seats where you guys were sitting. We prayed for our congregation and each of the people in our church because that really is what makes up the church. We believe in prayer a lot. It's been said that prayer is the glue that binds us to the heart of God. I don't know where I heard that, but I was like, that is so true. It's not original with me. Not, not very much is original with me as you Maybe you've known me for very long. Uh, but I want to encourage you to join us on that Facebook page, to the group uh, website up there, uh, facebook.com slash groups slash Grace Life 40 Days. It's not too late to get involved if you're not doing it. You can download, like I said, the PDF, as well as get updates on those prayer points as they come up throughout the day. As well, we have another tool for you out there on the, as you may have noticed as you're coming in, on the table outside, there's a card for pulling out your prayer requests. Because we do believe in prayer so much. It does align us with God, with his heart, and his passions for this world. If you have a prayer request, something we can pray for you about, please take this and fill it out. Leave it in an offering plate as you leave uh, this morning. And we send this out to our prayer team so we can know how to pray for you individually uh, as we pray for one another. We want to make sure we are lifting each other up. And in, the, in the days and weeks to come, we'll have these in the back of the chairs in front of you. So that you'll be able to reach that and fill that out and then leave it in the uh, offering plate as you leave each Sunday. But I do want to encourage you to join us in this 40 days of prayer leading up to the election coming up in just a few short weeks. Uh, not just We're not just praying for the election, but that's just the time frame that we, I feel like God is leading us as we prepare our, our hearts for his impact on us. Because all revival, all impacts, they start with God getting us on his side and the prayer aligns us with his passions and his purposes. As you know, we've been going through the book of Hebrews for the past few weeks. This is week number seven in our, our study through the book of Hebrews. And uh, we're going we're gonna to jump ahead a little bit and we went through the end of chapter six, uh, uh, beginning of chapter six a couple weeks ago, or last week rather. And chapter, end of chapter six, seven and part of eight, they all talk about Melchizedek and how Jesus was the great high priest. And, he, and then the author of Hebrews expands on that idea of Jesus as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, even more than he did back in chapter four. But we already dealt with that in great detail when he first brought it up. So I'm going to let you read through six, seven, and eight on your own to catch up on some of the stuff we've already dealt with. We're going to jump ahead to the end of chapter eight into verse chapter nine as we get into talking about how Jesus is greater than all the old covenants. When you think of covenants, what's a covenant you think of? We think of maybe a covenant with your spouse. Like you make a promise to your spouse, I'm going to honor you, I'm going to be faithful to you, I'm going to, in sickness and in health, richer or poorer, hopefully more richer than poorer, but we all want to, we make these covenants to each other, we make these covenants to our spouses, I will be with you and I will be faithful until the end. 
right? It's a covenant that we make. Maybe your job, or you make a covenant to your, your place of employment. I'm going to be here every, every Monday through Friday from 9 to 5. I'm going to be here. And they are covenanting you. When you're here 9 to 5, we'll pay you a salary. Maybe a little salary, but they'll pay you a salary. <laughs> Covenants with our governments, right? We are citizens of the United States of America. And so we covenant to pray for our government. We pray covenant to pray for our leaders. We covenant to, be, to honor them as our leaders that God has put in place. And the government then promises to tax us until we're poor. I mean, the government promises to uh, protect us from all enemies outside and within. It has certain responsibilities as our government. But in Scripture, as we think of the covenants that God has placed in Scripture, we can think of the covenant in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were there and he's told Adam, God told Adam, you can have dominion over all this garden, over all the animals. Just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? If you, do, if, if you dishonor this covenant, you will not die. But with the day that you eat of this tree, you will die. So Satan comes along. Did God really say you were going to die? You couldn't eat of any tree in the garden? It kind of tries to twist God's word. There's a covenant with Noah after the flood, right? This global flood that took place that killed every living thing on, on the land and in the air. Killed it all. The waters rose so high. So the one family was saved. And as they came out of the ark, God placed in the, in, in the sky a rainbow. And that was his covenant with Noah. Don't worry. I will not destroy the earth again by water, by a flood. Right? He made a covenant with Abraham. He said, you're going to be the father of a great nation. I know you have no kids. Your, your wife is barren. But trust me, you're going to become the father of a great nation. And through that nation, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham's like, I believe it. He believed God. Then there's the law, then there's the most the covenant that God made through Moses at Mount Sinai. Here's the law. If the people follow this law and they obey this law and they honor me and trust me and they follow me, I will be with them and I will be their God and you'll be my people and all will be well with you. And there's a covenant he made through David, King David. This is from your line, the Messiah, the Savior will come. Those covenants in the Old Testament were important to the people. They were vitally important to God's people. They, they rested, that they grabbed a hold of those covenants and they lived for them. And in, in, in the New Testament, as the author is writing to Greek believe, to believers who were who have a Jewish background, they come into this new life of Christianity, this new life of believing in Jesus as the savior of the world. This new life of just kind of setting aside their Jewish roots and trying to adopt this Messiah and trying to fit it all together. And so the author, rather than saying those covenants are wrong, he says, let's understand them in perspective for how God gave them and why he gave them. To let them know that these, all these covenants, all these laws, all these prophecies, all these things in what we call the Old Testament, they all culminate in the person of Jesus. 
All of the Old Testament comes together and points to the Messiah, to the Savior, to Jesus and who he is as our Savior, as fulfillment of all of these covenants. In fact, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And rather than me expounding on all of that for the next couple of minutes, I want us to watch this. There's a real quick video here where a couple of guys have come together and they really explain how Jesus is the fulfillment of these covenants. And then we'll come back and look at God's word and we'll break it down. So it's really clear. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend or your father or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah, saying, Listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant, is that God is promising to be faithful, even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. 
The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel and obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the New Covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus, is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who is able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David, and so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. That's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new... Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God in the Old Testament whether it's the covenants, the prophets, and all the prophecies. All that's happened in the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment. In fact, here, in what the author is telling us here in the book of Hebrews is Jesus is the better covenant. He is the better covenant that they were all looking for in the Old Testament. As you just saw, he, was, he fulfilled the promise to Abraham, fulfilled the promise to Israel, fulfilled the promise to David. And some of those covenants, many of them, of the four that he mentioned a minute ago, three of them, the people had nothing to do with, right? The one to Israel said, if you, if you follow my law, if you do this, then you'll be at peace and you'll have, you'll have, I'll be with you. But the other ones was totally on God. The one to Abraham, the one to David, they were totally on God and Noah as well. We didn't have to do anything to see their fulfillment. And so if you look in Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to read through a couple of verses here this morning. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 uh, through, the, through the end of the chapter there. What does that covenant look like? What does this new covenant look like? Here in chapter, chapter 10, 8, verse 10, he says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in their minds, 
write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each other, each one his neighbor and each one of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, and they shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. He says, I'm going to write on your hearts my law. I'm going to write on my hearts a desire to serve me and to know me. In fact, this is a direct quote out of the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, the author is pulling this pull quote right out of Jeremiah into here so that these, these believers in the New Testament can say, it all works together. This is not just Old Testament and New Testament. It's not just the law and then Jesus coming on board and changing everything up. He's showing them how it all fits together. He wanted to show them that the Lord foretold the day when his final priest would come. All these rules, all these regulations, all these things that they've been trying to follow their whole life to please God. They couldn't please God by doing those things. The final priest would come, the Messiah, who's going to be the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate high priest, to do what needed to be done for us. I mean, it's almost as if the author is saying to those reading, and to you and I as well, did you not see the message? Did you not see the message in the prophets? Did you not see the message in the Psalms? Did you not see the message in the law? Did you not see the message in all the history stories? They all point to Jesus. But we have a problem. Because at this time we're trying to make, well, God is trying to make peace with mankind. He's trying to, he's trying to show us there's a better way. We have a problem in our own lives. See, our greatest problem is sin. It severs us from the presence of God. As we sin, it breaks God's heart. It breaks his heart. Our sin and his holiness and his perfection, his unsinfulness, who he is at his very core, they are incompatible. As we sin, it breaks his heart because he cannot allow sin into his presence. I don't mean big sins. I mean any sin. One simple little sin. One lie. One stealing piece of candy. One bad thought. One look at somebody going, I hope they die. And maybe you don't mean it, but your anger is so much right there. Your hatred is so much right there. That's sin. And God cannot allow a person with sin in their life into his presence. And so, he chose a mediator to inaugurate this new covenant to provide a way for sinful creation, you and I, to somehow 
fall underneath this new covenant to allow us to come into the presence of God eventually. Jesus talked about this in Luke twenty-two twenty, As he's in the upper room with the disciples the Lord, at the Last Supper, he said, and likewise this cup, after they, after they had eaten, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Knowing that just a few short hours, he was going to be arrested and tried and hung on a cross. And his blood was going to drip down from that cross as a sacrifice to cover the sins of all mankind. And not just that goofy little picture you saw up on the screen. God in the flesh did for us what mankind couldn't do for ourselves. See, in Jesus, all the new covenant promises belong to God's people. All the promises of God, all those promises in the Old Testament, all those promises that, that the, the readers have been reading, studying their whole lives, all those things that we long for, they're all found in the person of Jesus. And through him, we can find peace with God. Melchizedek. He was the king of Salem, the king of the city of peace. And he was a priest of God, living in the city of peace. His name meant righteousness, and only through righteousness can you have peace. But we, in our, in our normal moral selves, cannot live a righteous life that is perfect. Only when our sin is covered by the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus can we find the true peace with God. So as we look on, as we, as we understand that that is why Jesus came, that is what he's coming to do as part of this new covenant. What does it look like then? Look in, in, in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read through, basically read through this whole chapter here. We're going to look at Jesus provides unmediated access to the God of the universe. Prior to Jesus coming, they had the temple, they had their holy of holies, they had the holy place, they had all the sacrifices. But separating the front, the front part of the, of the of the temple and the tabernacle from the back part of the temple, te temple and tabernacle is this curtain. It divides the place where the priest did their normal sacrifices from the place where the only the high priest could go once a year to make atonement for the people. And Jesus came to tear that all up. To make unmediated, unfettered access for everybody to come before the God of the universe. No longer separated by sin. No longer separated by the veil. No longer separated by anything, but we can have direct, unfettered access. So look with me in Hebrews chapter 9. Let's read the first 10 verses together. He said, we're going to break this down as we read through this. He says, now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry in an earthly sanctuary. For the tabernacle was set up in the first room, which is called the holy place. There was a lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Right? He's describing what's in this first part of the room. So behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the gold altar of incense 
The Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, or the Ten Commandments as we know them. The cherubim of glory were above the ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. And it is not possible to speak about those things in great detail right now. With these things prepared like this, the priests entered the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room. And he does that only once a year and never without blood. Which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that had committed what they had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol. We'll get to that in a second. See, what he's describing here is the old sacrificial system. As the priests would come, people would bring their sacrifices, the goats, the doves, the bulls, all the, 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 the flour and, and all the grains, and they would bring these sacrifices into the temple, into the tabernacle, to try to align themselves with God, to re- try to remove their sins. And yet, because the righteous sacrifice the most righteous sacrifice had not yet been made, they had to do this over and over and over and over and over and over, you get the point, over again. There was no end to the number of times they had to go and make a sacrifice to cover their sins. Those that committed in ignorance and those that committed willingly. That tent reflects the holiness of God and a reminder of the covenant that God would made with Israel in Sinai. Every time the people looked at the temple, every time they looked at the tabernacle, they were reminded that God wants to make peace with them. They were reminded of this holy God who desires a relationship with them. That verse 9 and 10 here sums it up. He says, this temple, this tabernacle, this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They're not enough. They are the physical regulations that only deal with food and drink and various washings imposed to the total time of the new order. So these things they're offering are just temporary cleansings. They just make you clean for a short time. It's like taking a shower and going out playing in the mud. Come back in, take a shower, play in the mud. Go in, take a shower, go out and clean your garden. You get dirty. You can't... I remember growing up, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. The humidity in Charleston is off the, off the charts. Getting out of the shower and you towel off and just when I think I'm dry, humidity hits. And I gotta towel off some more. And just when I think I'm dry, I gotta towel off some more. And towel off and towel. And I never really got dry. 100%. That's kind of what it is with the sacrifices. You offer the sacrifice, and you're right back at it again. You offer a sacrifice, and you're right back at it again. You offer a sacrifice, and you're right back at it again. Until Jesus shows up. See, these priests who 
who are offering these sacrifices for the people, allows them to come near to the presence of God, right? They, they come near to the presence of God. Look at this priest here. He's offered a sacrifice. Is he in the presence of God? No. He is merely near the presence of God because even that sacrifice was not enough. The bulls, the goats, the doves, all those things that people offered, they were not enough to allow them into the very presence of God. Because God's holiness would have wiped them out. Even though their sins were covered, they were still present. Because those sacrifices were merely pictures of the ultimate sacrifice that was going to come in the person of Jesus. A couple thousand years down the road, the Messiah when he came. They never allowed him into his very presence. And when the offerings were ultimately considered imperfect, they merely held back God's wrath. They held back the wrath of God temporarily from consuming them. We read there about the time, that time of, of, of what's it called, time of restoration. That time arrived when Christ appeared on the scene. You saw the picture in the video of God becoming man. God in the flesh, the person of Jesus. God in the flesh here on the earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life for 33 years. And then he was arrested, tried, crucified, killed on the cross. And because his sacrifice was pure, because he had no sin in his life, his sacrifice became what all those other sacrifices could not do. It didn't just cover the sins of his followers temporarily. It wiped them out. Wiped them out. In fact, Jesus on the cross, as he hung there, he cries out, it is finished. And at that very moment, the veil, the thick curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place where the sacrifices were given was torn into, rent into, letting us know that we now have unmediated access to the Father because of Jesus' sacrifice, our great high priest. Look at verse 11 through 15. Our great high priest says, but Christ has appeared as a high priest and of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all time. Not by the blood of goats and calves, but by what? By his own blood. You see that? By his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption, verse 12 says. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the young cow, sprinkling on those who are, are, are defiled, Sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, to cleanse all of our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance 
because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You get what that's saying? All those sacrifices, the blood and the goats and the ashes, if those things had been enough, Jesus would have had to come. But because they weren't enough, they were merely enough to bring people near into the presence of God, near to his presence, not into his presence. Jesus came and his blood became the ultimate sacrifice by his own blood. I love that there in verse 12. What did he offer? His own blood retaining eternal redemption, not temporary redemption. Eternal redemption for all of us, for everybody who simply bows their knees and says, Jesus, I'm yours. Come and fill me. You are my Savior. I want to live for you. I want to honor you. I want to glorify your name. I want to have forgiveness of sins like it's talked about here. Eternal redemption. Once and for all. Jesus didn't have to go back on the cross over and over and over and over again. He didn't have to die over and over and over again for my sins and your sins. Once and for all. See, when you begin to grasp what Jesus has done here, when he cried out, it is finished, he didn't say it's almost complete. He didn't say it might be complete. He didn't say, I've done my best. I hope it's finished. Three simple words. It is finished. Nothing more is needed. The price has been paid. The sacrifice has been given. All of mankind is now covered. Their sins forgiven. And scripture says that when, once you receive the love of Jesus, once you receive his forgiveness of sins, your sins are tossed as far as the east is from the west. Never to be seen or heard from by God again. Period. All those sins I committed when I was a little kid. All those sins I committed this morning. And there's some. All those sins I'm going to commit next week, next month, next year, next decade. Next, well, maybe not next century. Next couple decades. They're all already forgiven. God does not see them. He does not hold them against me. Because Jesus died once for my sins and once for your sins, period. He's our great high priest. His sacrifice did what the bulls and the goats could not do. He achieved permanent atonement for us. Look at verse 22, chapter 9, verse 22. He says, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood even without the shedding of blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why did God use blood? It's kind of icky, it's kind of nasty. In the blood, there is life, the Bible says. And he uses life to cover our sins. The blood to cover our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned, right? They went and ate of the, of the, tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How did God cover their sins? What did he do? He gave them clothes, right? All of a sudden, after they sinned, they were hiding from God in the garden. And God's going, Adam, Adam, where are you? Where are you? 
We're over here, dog. What are you doing? Are you hiding? Maybe. What are you hiding for? Because we're naked. Who told you you were naked? Prior to that, Adam and Eve had been walking all through the garden. They were naked and they felt no shame. They'd been walking with God arm and on. Nobody, there was no sense of nakedness. There was no sense of shame. There was no sense of, I need to hide myself from God. That's who told you were naked. Why do you feel shame in my presence now? And the nakedness was just a picture of what was already going on. The shame was there. They tried covering themselves with leaves. God said, those leaves aren't enough. I'm going to give you clothes. But in order to give you clothes, something has to die. Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So God killed an animal, sheep, goat, we don't really know. And he made skins and clothes for them. That far back in the Bible, an animal died to cover the sin, sinfulness of Adam and Eve. How sad, how sad that is. Verse 24 says this, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. Why? On our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you see that? The goats, the sheep, the bulls, the grain, the doves, the pigeons, all these things that have been sacrificed, all the blood that had been shed, and poured out over this altar during during the, the, the this, this when Jesus was crucified during that time of year there were sacrifices made over and over and over again blood flowed off of the altars it flowed off the altar they kill a bull lead it next bull kill it lead it next bull kill it lead it next bull over and over and over when we lived in China we used to go to the meat market and they have a table from the meat over here, a table for meat over here. Sometimes I'd be hanging behind, this, behind the, the tables, just cows and, and horses and goats and sheep hanging there, and blood would just be dripping out of them. And it would run to the middle aisle because they were smart enough to make this little trench. And so you're walking, and you have to avoid. You step over the, the trench, you step over the trench to go from table to table. And that was nothing compared to what was going on in Jerusalem during sacrifice time. Blood was just everywhere around the altar. There was no getting away from it. It was on the priest's clothes, it was on their shoes, it was all over their outfits, it was on the people who brought the animals to be sacrificed. It was everywhere. But Jesus came and died. It says he appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Because remember, there's that partnership that God wants with his people. There's a partnership that God wants with mankind. Verse 27 says this, that just as it was appointed for man to die once, 
and after that comes the judgment. It's been appointed to man to die one time. One time. Then after that, there is judgment from God. The question is, when you die, where will you go? What will happen to you? That's the eternal question that everybody needs to answer while you are still on this earth. Once you have died that one time and you're standing before God, it's too late. He's going to ask you, while you were alive on, your, on earth, what did you do with the information about Jesus? What did you do with my son? What did you do with that information that I gave you about my son? Did you receive it? Did you accept it? Did you ask for forgiveness? And did his blood then cover your sins? Were they thrown as far as east as from the west? Or did you live that good life that was acceptable and pleasing to the community around you, maybe, but didn't line up to my standards? Did you not submit yourself to my holiness? Did you not submit yourself to the lordship of God in your life to ask him to forgive you? And say, God, I'm going to commit my whole life to you from this point forward. That's what God's going to ask. What did you do with the information I gave you about Jesus? Judgment's going to come. Are you ready for it? Verse 28 says this. It says, because of this judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. He's going to come back a second time. The second time. He's not coming back to deal with our sin. That sin's already been dealt with. Our sin has already been, is gone. For those who are his children, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, who say, God, I bow my knee before you, say, you are my God, my Savior. He's not going to come back to deal with people's sin at that point. He's coming back to take us to, into his presence. And he can only take us into his presence if there is no sin present in our lives. Not that we haven't sinned, not that we don't still continue to sin, but there's no sin present that he has not forgiven. And he only forgives it for those who humble themselves and submit themselves to his lordship and say, I'm going to follow you the rest of my life. So as we look this morning, as we continue this morning, the question that was in that video there at the beginning of the service, are you willing to join in partnership with God? Are you willing to submit yourself to become a partner with him in what he wants to do in this world? That's what it's about. It's not about giving more. It's not about being nicer. Question, are you willing to become his partner in sharing the message of the good news of what Jesus has done with, this, with those people in our community and around the world? Partnership is just that. God does his part, we do our part. God's already done his part. He's already forgiven our sins. 
He has already died for us once. Our part is we come along now. Say, God, I accept that gift. I accept that sacrifice. And now I want to become your child. I want to become, be able to call you Heavenly Father and become your child and partner with you in what you are trying to do to reach this world, to save as many as possible from the coming judgment. We don't know when that judgment's going to happen. Could happen next week, next month, next decade, next century. But we do know it's going to happen. Nothing in God's word has not come true. Are you ready to partner with God today? You bow your heads and close your eyes just for a minute. I'm not going to embarrass anybody, but maybe there's somebody in this room this morning as you've been listening this morning, you've realized there is something in my life that is keeping me from this partnership with God. And I need to get rid of it. I need to have this pure, uncontested, unfettered access to God. And that only happens as I give myself over.